questions of this podcast has been, how do we begin to rethink feminism? Given the fact that in the current era, so many women are so unhappy. Well, a group of powerhouse writers and thinkers gathered at Harvard last month to contemplate that very question. My guest on the podcast today moderated that panel, which one could argue marked a major turning point in feminist thought. Erica Bakiaki is an American legal scholar and author and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's also the founder and director of the Wollstonecraft Project at the Abigail Adams Institute, which publishes a new online journal, Fairer Disputations. Her latest book is The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. Erica Bakiaki is my guest today on Lean Out. Erica, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you moderated the Rethinking Feminism panel at Harvard last week. This was a panel I thought was so exciting. I actually booked a flight to Boston to come down. Um, I couldn't in the end because I had the flu, but I did want to have you on the show so we could discuss this really momentous occasion. I do think it was a timely panel, uh, one that is sort of cementing a current moment in feminist history. You had Louise Perry, author of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, Christine Emba, author of Rethinking Sex, and Mary Harrington, author of Feminism Against Progress, all of whom have actually been on this podcast as well. In her opening remarks on the panel, Christine Emba posed a question, what did the feminist movement aim to achieve and what did it actually get? Why is there such a delta between what I think was the original vision and where we are now? So to start today, Erica, why is this such an urgent question in feminism at the current moment? Yeah, well, I mean, I I think uh, in my book, The Rights of Women, I trace um, the cause of women's rights from uh, the British philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft through a lot of legal history. And I mean, what I claim and argue in that book is that, you know, we first understood rights as necessary for fulfilling responsibilities. And so our sort of the relational or interdependent uh, nature that we have as human beings was very much at the forefront of that vision. I think what happened is that we sort of took, uh, there was a devolution or a wrong turn. Um, you know, most of us are marking it at the pill, uh, which, you know, Mary, of course, calls the first transhumanist intervention. But I think in the way that those kinds of responsibilities were eclipsed, like our family responsibilities were eclipsed and the elevation of a lot of sort of male um, kind of a male normative frame, both in, you know, how women engage in sex, um, how they work, those kinds of things were were elevated by that second wave of feminism. I think there's some great things in the second wave of feminism, including anti-discrimination law that were sort of some important correctives in our legal history. But I think for sure that there's been a way in which women's bodies, women's distinctive and really important, civilizationally <laughs> important um, capacity for for childbearing and desire, uh, especially in caregiving and in early years, especially through nursing, et cetera, has really been discounted in modern feminism. And we've kind of had this idea that like tech can intervene and make us all equal through, you know, the pill and abortion. And so, you know, my argument is basically that at the very outset of the women's rights movement, there was a desire to respond to the asymmetries between the sexes through 
really moral, like moral claims um, about, say, male chastity or social and legal kind of interventions, you know, property ownership, contract, entry into the profession, those kind of things. But with Margaret Sanger, there was a real shift to seeing that really the problem was the female body and that we needed a technological intervention. And so we're really seeing the fallout from that now, I think, that um, because we haven't taken women's distinctive, well, bodies and really needs and interests as seriously, it's now, you know, there's, well, going to be a backlash of that, you know, for, for, for women who kind of see that a lot of people are miserable right now <laughs> and that it's really hard to raise children right now and that the workplace doesn't really accommodate, accommodate, you know, those kinds of responsibilities very well right now. And, um, and so there's a bunch of us who are coming from different perspectives and different angles, but are starting to want to push back on this, on this, um, kind of hegemony, I would say, in in modern feminism today. Mm. And Louise Perry, who has written this radical critique of the sexual revolution, at, at her opening remarks uh, for this panel, she, she noted that one of the things that she got the most flack for on Twitter was a chapter head, men and women are different. In your view, what does it mean that this has become such a contentious statement to make? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that there's real historical reasons for the reticence among feminists because of the way in which that difference, especially, you know, I trace it actually in a, a recent article on First Things called Sex Realist Feminism, trace it back to Aristotle. But I think you see that in our early history too, that women's reproductive capacity really, you know, kind of excluded them from certain, you know, from the professions, from co-equal education, those kinds of things, like they were just seen as destined for the work of the home, right? Which all of which I think is great work, but they were really excluded from participating otherwise. And um, and so feminism has been reticent to really acknowledge sexual difference for all those reasons. The thing is, is that to my mind as a legal scholar, sex discrimination law kind of takes care of that. Like we don't really have to worry about that too much. And so why not really acknowledge the way in which the sexes are different today. Um, I don't think we have as much to fear as people worry about. I really kind of trust our capacity to ensure that women won't be hurt by by look taking those those differences seriously. What I would say, and you know, uh, Louise and I kind of come from different perspectives. Um, you know, she works in evolutionary psychology and biology, and I think her her case in that book is is incredible, is very, very good and solid. I guess because I'm a lawyer, I want to sort of make that appeal first that we do have to look at why it was that people were worried and that's the response that people are having. But I do think even someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was very sort of open about the fact that of course there are sex differences, not only physical, but potentially psychological in the way that we you know, react to things um, and the things we care about and, you know, our agreeability versus aggressive, all those kinds of things. And what her point was just, okay, what does that mean for how I respond to the individual litigant in front of me? Right. And so that's what I would say is that I think Louise is really good to talk about how there's these, you know, it's like Aristotle saw that it's, you know, for the most part, these things are true, but that sometimes you'll have outliers. And I think being responsive and uh, respectful of those outliers are important, but we can't have those outliers sort of silence the rest of, you know, human nature <laughs> and all of the ways in which men and women are quite different. Mm. 
Another point I wanted to touch on from the panel, Mary Harrington, in her remarks and in her work, she talks about how the current liberal feminist thinking, the idea of using tech to free us from the constraints of our bodies, mainly serves the interests of a certain class of women elite, economically privileged knowledge workers, and that the downside of this kind of radical cultural change are unevenly distributed, impacting working class women a lot. Um, She said at that panel, not every woman can live in the dematerialized world of information and ideas. What are your thoughts on the class inequality aspect around this whole conversation? Yeah, no, I think she does that really, really well in that book. Uh, I mean, Mary is an incredibly brilliant writer um, and is able to sort of put in pithy words and you in the use of metaphors and all that in a way that few, I think, can. So I'm I'm just thrilled about her book. I, I think that the class distinction is something that that I too have brought a lot of attention to in terms of the way in which when you when the pill sort of intervenes and abortion too, there becomes an expectation that men and women are able to sort of interact in the marketplace, in professions, et cetera, as though they were the same. And that's really kind of the point, right, is that it flattens differences. And what Mary's pointing out is that in many professions, law, you know, accounting, all sorts of things like that, those sex differences don't really matter much. And so her point is that, you know, elite women don't want to bring attention to those sex differences because, of all the reasons I mentioned before that, you know, two lawyers, well, one may, you know, pay too much attention to, I don't know, some distinction and and really, and really not take seriously a woman's legal work or something like that. So they want to really not bring attention to that. When the fact of the matter is like many women, especially I would say poor working class women are either still doing work that is not say intellectual work or the the care that they are offering their own children that they want to be offering their own children is very much embodied work right and so they don't have the kind of freedom that say an upper class woman does to take all sorts of leave to have all sorts of flexibility their work requires them to be in two different places at once one with their child and one with you know i don't know whether it's at mcdonald's or caregiving in somebody else's house or cleaning houses or whatever they literally can't be with the child they want to be with um they have to miss the do- doctor's appointment they have to miss the soccer games their flex their flexible the the schedule is incredibly rigid among working class women and they have to work so they don't have the freedom of choosing in order to stay home and i think that has been really sort of the biggest cost in my mind is that when home and work are separated by industrialization and then the pill, abortion, these kind of technologies allow, you know, upper class women to plan, to 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 work like a man can, um, there's all sorts of women who are left out from that sort of technological revolution and have to sort of sort through the, these things themselves, um, one individual at a time. And it's very, very difficult. I mean, the fact that we don't have, the fact that we've kind of used and relied on abortion to facilitate this kind of equality in the workplace means that we haven't really spent enough attention really uh, ensuring that family responsibilities are accommodated. And that's been hardest for sure on poor and working class women. There's no Mm -hmm. doubt. Well, it raises an interesting point. I mean, the 
moment that we're in overall is a coming together of feminists from the left and more socially conservative uh, feminists. You're, I know that you identify as pro-life. I identify as pro-choice, but I think these conversations are really important to have. And there, what do you think is the significance of these new kind of allegiances being formed, these new coalitions, this kind of new fluidity of blurring almost of the boundaries between the left and, and the right divide and this real desire to find common ground? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, Totally thrilled about um, about all of this, and I think part of what I think is happening is something very similar to what happened in the 19th century in response to industrialization. Um, that there's a solidarity that women of all classes, all races, all sort of situations um, can engage in because of the vulnerability and dependency that comes with caregiving. And so the maternalists of the 19th century, I mean, all joined and whether they were actual, you know, physical mothers taking care of children in their home, or whether they were public mothers, like the great Jane Addams, the great Florence Kelly, all these women who did incredible work galvanizing social causes for, you know, child labor for, I mean, even slavery, et cetera. Um, these women call themselves public mothers, right? There's like a sense of solidarity about the responsibility that I think more and more women understand that they, that we have toward human development to to human flourishing to um to children and and their own development and the good that and and the desire for many women to take very seriously that development and to do that care and that um that pushing forward of of the implication of virtue and all of that in the home do that themselves in you know conjunction with their partner usually you know the father of of their child so I think um, I think that there's a way in which when women have children, I mean, that's what you see in a lot of these women's stories, right? Is that it happened earlier for me. I was a women's studies student at Middlebury College in the 1990s, you know, Bernie Sanders, volunteer, uh, socialist, feminist, and all that. So I was on the left as well, but it was in graduate school um, that I sort of came to see some issues, I think, with with modern kind of feminist responses to, you know, sexual asymmetry but I think for a lot of these women, they've been plugging along and it's motherhood really kind of alerts them to the possibility and to the reality that men and women are different and have different needs and that they really, maybe they weren't women. I certainly wasn't who were all, you know, about babies. I mean, there's sort of many women who are like that. There's many women who aren't, but when they have their own baby, they're all about that baby, you know? And I think fathers have this desire to be with their own children too, but there's just something visceral there's something evolutionary there's something what however you want however you want to put it that women really uh you know together again a class races and classes care um so much about the good of children i think you see this whether people are on the left or the right all the time i think about something like anne marie slaughter who's who's you know book um and and work about you you know her like i think the most read uh, piece in the Atlantic, you st- women can, still can't have it all. Why? Well, it's because she was concerned about her son, her teenage son, right? And this is a woman who's reached all sorts of peaks in terms of profession. And her work too, um, I think is really important and seeing on the left how the work of care has to be attended to in feminism. Um, I would disagree with her on some points, but I'm thrilled. I think it's a great advance advance for, for women and for feminism. So I, I do think there's discussions, I'm thrilled that these sorts of discussions, sort of giving priority to the work of the family. And that 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 work of the family takes all sorts of different 
shades and, and it looks different all the time because of the different kinds of capacities and circumstances and talents and roles that men and women want to play in those families today. And that there's a lot more flexibility in that. And I think you're right that it's kind of a historic time in, in um, feminism and, and sort of thinking about women's rights. Mm. And I think it's interesting how people come to this conversation. I do want to talk a little bit about your background in a moment. Um, but I will say when Mary was on the podcast, Mary Harrington, we we talked about for her, it was motherhood. For me, it was missing motherhood. It was the mm. fact that I missed the boat on that because I had been sort of immersed in this progressive feminist timeline that doesn't actually account for fertility. Um, so that's what got me kind of questioning it. But but to go back to the panel just for a moment, there was a group of local all-girls um, school there, and Mary Harrington addressed her talk to them in particular. I'm very curious about the response to the panel. I mean, so often these days we see feminists who acknowledge biological sex being shouted down in public, sometimes even subjected to physical violence. I didn't see any evidence of that in the video I reviewed, um, which I understand will be posted shortly. What was the response from the crowd at the event? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think we took care to ensure, uh, because we were having an event the next day as well, that we wanted to make sure went on, that, you know, we didn't plaster around Harvard a month in advance. I mean, that I think that's part of uh, part of the way we flew on, under the radar, but at the same time, we had Harvard students there and Harvard faculty. So I think, you know, the response that I heard was everybody was thrilled, <laughs> All the people I heard were very thankful um, that such a panel could could take place at Harvard in general, bringing together these three kind of powerhouse female thinkers. Uh, so, so far, so good. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about your background, because I, I did listen to this really amazing podcast interview between yourself and Richard Reeves, author of Poison Men. He's also been a guest on this podcast. And you spoke about your kind of personal story behind your feminism. And I think so many of us have these very deeply kind of personal stories. Talk to me about how your experiences in childhood and in adolescence and your family life in re- in the recovery world set you on a path of this more kind of heterodox feminism. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I grew up in a family where my mom was married and divorced three times before I reached my 19th birthday. And I also suffered the loss of two friends from suicide. And all of that put me on a path in my early teen years of substance abuse, drinking, and ended up actually after the first friend's death in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so really at a very young age, that was like 17, <laughs> found myself kind of face-to-face existentially with a lot of questions that I think were both deeply difficult emotionally, but also matured me really quickly um, in the sense of taking seriously kind of big questions and caring a lot about big questions. So when I went to college at Middlebury, I had kind of done my drinking (laughs) and uh, I was a soccer player there. So there were plenty of people who were drinking around me, but I just really wanted to engage in really big questions. So I, right away, I mean, the people who I thought that I could see took those questions most seriously were the women's studies student and the women's center on campus. So I right away got really involved in the women's studies, you know, women's studies classes, but then also the women's center, you know, did kind of brown bag lunches and was really invested in that and enjoyed my women's studies classes. I think they they really pushed me to think um, hard about certain things. But kind of the problem, I think, was that because I had done the drinking and done the kind of hookup culture, but yet had around me people who were doing that, I there I was very alert to the ways in which I saw, I could see things that 
I don't know that they could. And it wasn't that it was coming from a place of judgment. It was coming from a place of introspection, like looking and saying, huh, I wonder if that's why I was so broken up in my sort of teens was drinking and hooking up was emotionally kind of making me a basket case. And I was seeing around me that similar kind of thing, like friends of mine who would drink and hook up and then just be, just have a really hard time with it afterward. And so though I I wasn't doing that anymore, and I can't say I was emotionally much better than they were (laughs) at that point in my life, but I was starting to connect the dots like, huh, maybe this isn't kind of the way that we ought to be living with one another. There was also at that time, it was in the mid 1990s. There were a bunch of books actually that came out. There's, I feel like there are these waves of books that have similar themes. I don't know if it's in the drinking water, just sort of what's happening in, in culture, but there were a bunch of themes on, on hookup culture, on kind of date rape on campus, on all of these kinds of questions. And so I was very alert to those as well. And um, I was also really, really pro-choice. So really saw abortion as a backdrop to that whole that whole way of life, I guess I would say. And so what happened for me was partly because I was very open to different kind of perspectives because, well, the one I was living and the one I was thinking, like my worldview wasn't really working for me very well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think to just being in AA and being with a lot of adults helped me to kind of see in a way that maybe good parents would do, but I didn't really see that as much um, kind of a broader perspective about life, right? About children, about all that. So I actually went down to DC and I was working on welfare reform actually during the time when welfare was being reformed. So this is in the, in 1996. And, and that sort of opened me up to questions around for women and the solutions that our country gave for poverty. And what I was seeing is that the people on my side, so on the left, were very much enamored by abortion, not as like the only solution, but as a, a that is a pretty fundamental solution. And alongside that, I was reading people in the communitarian movement, which again was very big in the 1990s. So these were academic thinkers like Michael Sandel, Amitiazzi Oni, um, people at Har- a lot of people at Harvard, Marianne Glendon who were really questioning sort of the individualism that was they saw as inherent in liberalism. And so I was reading in particular Marianne Glendon's uh, book, Rights Talk. And in that book, she, well, it's not like a pro-life book. She's a pro-life woman, but she sort of recounted the way in which the way that that our abortion law had kind of left women with their autonomy and nothing else. And I know that there's all sorts of and, and emergent, really, you know, reproductive justice groups today that are also pushing back on that view. But what she was showing was the way in which crisis pregnancy centers and pro-life people in the grassroots had really made time in their lives to help women in crisis, women who had wanted to have their babies, but just couldn't because of economic circumstances or difficulties in their life, you know, whether coercion from their parents or their boyfriends or whatever to have abortions or you know, violence in their own homes or whatever. And this was this kind of aha moment in that exactly what I'd experienced in AA, right? Was like people making room for my, the complexity of my life and my own kind of emotional trauma and my recovery, right? I saw that this kind of was a humanizing way in which a whole host of people were were making room for women with children. 
um, women who are pregnant. And that seemed to me to be like this whole new way. So I didn't like become pro-life right away. I went back to campus and what I started, what did I do? And I'll, I'll let you get a word in edgewise now, but I changed my major from women's studies to political science and started studying political philosophy with people in that department who, and I really moved away from kind of questions of politics altogether and started just studying ancient philosophy. So Plato, Aristotle, and others. And it really helped me to just really be after the truth, right? Kind of truth with a capital T. Like I wanted to think, kind of ask these big questions and then see how thinkers throughout the Western tradition and otherwise had come to grips with who we are as human beings. Like what are the alternative possibilities of who we are as human beings? How ought we live with one another? How ought we live? You know, all those kinds of big questions, I wanted to wrestle with them from a philosophical perspective. And so that's what I ended up doing. (laughs) And it sort of sent me in a different kind of trajectory and got me thinking about these kinds of questions about men and women um, from a deeply philosophical perspective. And I guess I'll say this last thing is that my friend Angela Franks and I co-teach a class that actually looks at women's history, kind of the philosophy, these kinds of philosophical questions throughout the Western tradition in the summer at the Abigail Adams Institute. It's called Theorizing Man and Woman from Plato to Judith Butler, in which, in which we kind of like contend with these kind of philosophical questions at the root of a lot of our political um, conversations today. Mm. It's so interesting. And I, I wonder too about the sort of just to touch briefly on on the family. And um, there was a really interesting recent essay, Wither Feminism, uh, by Andrea Mrozik from the Cardus Think Tank. She's also been on the show and she she quotes your book, The Rights of Women. And this is the quote, the decoupling of sex from marriage and marriage from childbearing ushered in by the sexual revolution unraveled a working class culture of once stable marital bonds that children need and both mothers and fathers once relied upon for their success at home and at work and in all of life. Um, this really resonated for me. Another point of questioning for me was, was you know, going through a divorce in my own family growing up and what what that meant. Uh, can you speak a little bit about, about the family and, and, and how you are thinking through that question? Yeah. So, I mean, that's really, I would say, if there's like a line about, you know, what is my book about? I think it's trying to elevate sort of recapture the way in which early feminist thinkers, so early women's rights thinkers, were very much understood the family as the formative institution it is. And you see this in Mary Wollstonecraft's work. And so they really saw both motherhood and fatherhood as really culturally essential roles, right? Uh, Vocations. The difference is, and what I trace in in my book, is how due to changing economic conditions, changing political circumstances, right? You know, the 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 rise of liberalism and men becoming, you know, entering into um, Republican citizenship, the way in which those kinds of institutions kind of left women out and put the family over in the private sphere. And then the public sphere was kind of for men and how women's rights activists and advocates at that early time were responding to that disempowerment of the work of the home and the work of the family, right? Which was at some point, really the biggest realm of society, right? I mean, homesteading, <laughs> um, agrar- the agrarian home. Um, and and really, I mean, the founders of our country relied on, took really took um, for granted the fact that, you know, Republican citizens would be they, the virtue that was necessary for Republican citizenship, you know, the trust between people, uh, you know, integrity, uh, honesty, all these things would be cultivated in the home. They took that for granted. I mean, that's the only way Repu- they knew that was the only way Republicanism would work out, like self-government would work, would work out. 
And so really what I'm trying to do is elevate the work of the family once again, because I think what we've done actually in modern feminism is not so much like it is a, there is a way in which we've said, okay, women kind of need to take on male sort of traditionally male, male roles, but in an even, I think that that's not really the best way of thinking about it because I don't think that being a lawyer needs to be a traditional, yes, men generally did that, but it doesn't seem to be male only work. Right. So, but what I do think we've done in modern feminism is that we've traded the priority of the home and the priority of family and formative institutions for the needs of the market. And I think that has been a great shame because what we've done is kind of capitulated to this market logic or sort of the needs of a capitalist economy. You know, I think the market is a great way to, you know, to organize ourselves in terms of of trade and all that, but I think it needs to stay in its lane and it hasn't. It's really crept off into the way we think about so many other realms of life. And so that's what I'm trying to call upon and which is why I think some people on the left have been really amenable to what I've been doing um, is really important and that all else should be shaped around that work. Again, the family can be organized in the way that the family seems fit, right? Um, But I think it has to be, it has to take seriously the work that it does. And it's not just a place for consumption, right? That it's a place Mm -hmm. for really, you know, creating the kinds of friends and, you know, neighbors and citizens and all that. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, absolutely. And and just let's let's end on this. At the, at the Boston panel, you you posed, I, I thought, a really important question, and that is uh, where do men fit in all of this? And you talked about a range of models that, you know, Andrew Tate was discussed. Richard Reeves was also discussed. And Christine Emba said, you know, ultimately, we want a society where men and women can work and live together. This is a big question, but in your view, how do women and men begin to come together again? How do we regain a spirit of cooperation and communion as opposed to competition and and suspicion and hostility? Yeah, this is a really great question. And I am, Richard is a friend and um, I'm a big fan of his work. Um, We also had him up actually for our fall panel with Harvey Mansfield talking about manliness and masculinity, which was a really, didn't record that one, but it, it was a really excellent discussion. Um, and I think this kind of collaboration is really important. And I guess I would you know, say what I said just before, which is that if we see the way in which fathers and mothers collaborate for the care of their children. So think about it. It's two different people with you know different ways they come at things, potentially, who collaborate for the good of a third or a fourth or fifth or whatever, and for the good of their marriage. And so I think there's a way in which that model is one that ought to be elsewhere in the world, right? That there's taking seriously the way in which, yeah, we could be different in everybody. I mean, regardless of whether it's men and men or men and women, um, it's, or women and women, like we all come at things from a slightly different perspectives, right? Because of our own experiences in life. And so why not take that diversity of viewpoint of experience and all that and see that as something that adds to the whole, right? Um, And so I think having the goods of the family at the heart, the goods of children at kind of the heart of, um, of the work that men and women, especially feminism, but also the work Richard's, Richard's doing, um, the work of politics of the markets, all that is seeing like, we have to take seriously the development of children. We have to take seriously the environments that children are in. We have to take seriously the environments that adults are in, right. That, that, um, that those are places where, um, I mean, I guess the the final thing I would say is that we have to take virtue seriously. And I think we do this 
in all areas of life, right? We notice excellent athletes. We notice excellent entrepreneurs. We notice excellent actors and, you know, they're excellent in their spheres of life. And I think it'd be great if we notice excellent parenting, we notice excellent spouses. We notice the ex- like moral excellence when we, we see someone like a politician who's being honest against his own, his or her own interest. That's something that we need to really, you know, take seriously again as a culture or things aren't going to go so well for us as we've <laughs> seen. <laughs> well, Erica, I really appreciate your work interrogating all these really important questions and also bringing these incredible feminist minds together for these conversations. So thank you for this conversation today. Thanks so much for having me. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.